Welcome to the Queer Movie Podcast, celebrating the best and worst in LGBTQ plus cinema, one glorious genre at a time. I'm Rowan Ellis. And I'm Jazza John. Each episode, we discuss a movie from a different genre of cinema. This episode's genre is... Queer Korea! Because yes, we've decided that it's a genre. And we are so excited for the film that we're talking about this time. It is 2016's erotic psychological thriller, The Handmaiden. Also, one of my favourite films. I feel like every one of the films that we've been doing recently is one of Rowan's favourites. I'm very predictable. I like gay stuff. (laughs) Very, very excited to get into this. But as is customary for us to ask every episode, Rowan... What's the gayest thing you've done since the last episode? Yeah, I should have really thought about this, shouldn't I, before we started to record? Oh, do you know what I did do? I adopted two kittens. I was going to say, if you don't mention becoming a, a fully-fledged cat lady, then... Yeah, um, what was the point? Are you even queer? Yeah, um, yeah. I have two kittens now called Ichabod and Persephone, and they're extremely cute, and I've had to lock them out of this room so that I can record, and I was really worried they were going to be pouring at the door, but they've just stopped as we started to record. Knock on wood, uh, we will not get any d- admittedly adorable interruptions so that this can remain an extremely professional podcast. Jazza, have you done anything as as gay as a lesbian adopting two kittens? <laughs> well, I, I feel like it's nearly impossible to be able to, to top that. But for me, anyway, the gayest thing that I've done is go back into the dating scene and successfully get ghosted by a man. Amazing. And if that doesn't represent queer male dating culture in London, then I don't know what does. Incredible. Yeah, I Congratulations. know. Congratulations. Thank you. I did Thank think you were going to so say, much. I have gone back in time. And I was like, this is about to become a much more interesting <laughs> podcast. But no, it was it was just you getting ghosted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Um, I haven't had many opportunities because I'm... I'm, I'm Newly out of surgery, um, so I'm quite delicate as well. Um, But you know what? Popping down to the pub every now and again. So first of all, we're going to talk a little bit about the behind the scenes and how the movie got made, as well as some historical context of the period it was set and a brief history of queer representation in Korea. We will be splitting the film into three acts because everybody loves a numbered list. We can't process information without them. And the movie also conveniently does this for us. And then finally, as always, we're going to give the movie our very special gay ratings. Uh, heads up for you, dear listener, we are going to be spoiling the totality of this movie. So this is for people who have seen the film or don't care about it being spoiled. If you haven't seen the movie but still want to listen, we just want to give some content warnings because this film uh, is really heavy and includes subjects like rape, suicide, heavy violence and paedophilia. If discussions of any of those topics isn't for you, then please look after yourself and give this one a miss and we'll see you in the next episode. So without further ado, let's don our fake moustaches and talk about The Handmaiden. (laughs) Ho ho ho. The sound I make when I don't a fake moustache. <laughs> so, full disclosure, we are, as you might be able to tell, very British, uh, and neither of us speak Korean. So, we are going to do our best with uh, the pronunciation of these names. But apologies if we don't get it quite right. We've seen some of them pronounced different ways online, and uh, we're we're going with the one that we think is most accurate. So, this movie was directed by Park Chan-wook, a very well-known and celebrated Korean director who probably is like most famous for winning the Grand Prix at Cannes for his movie Old Boy in 2003. So, 
The story of how this movie got made is really interesting because it is based on the 2002 novel Fingersmith, which is by a Welsh writer, Sarah Waters, who is quite well known for doing sort of like historical lesbian erotica type books. And this has had, I think, three other adaptations, um, including a BBC series. So the director was actually gifted um, a Korean translation of the book and he started reading it and very quickly he basically decided, you know, before even reading the whole of the book, I want to adapt this. But then he heard there was a BBC miniseries and he was like, oh, I guess not then because <laughs> <laughs> the BBC's already done it. So that ain't going to happen. But he kind of kept thinking about it and he was wondering like, well, actually, if I decided to adapt it, I wouldn't set it in Victorian England like how it was originally set. How would I set it? And it, he kept thinking it over and it sounds like something that was really like a passion project for him. And he was saying like, OK, in a, in a way that I think is actually the best way to do adaptations, which is not necessarily let's get this word for word perfect, but let's look at the themes, the context, the ideas behind it and figure out a way of doing it with what I as a director or I as a writer know about or care about. So he was like, well, me and the team that I would be putting together are all Korean. So setting it in Korea makes sense. But what era of Korea is going to be similar to Victorian era Britain? So it needs to be some period of time in which the class structure is of great importance. And it also needed to be a period of Korean history where the very modern like Western concept of a mental asylum was in existence would make sense. And it basically narrowed down the time period. And so we get to 1930s Korea under Japanese colonial rule. So Japan's kind of occupation of lots of Asia, including the, the Korean Peninsula and Taiwan and parts of China were a really significant part to the shaping of culture in East Asia in the run up to what Westerners would defined as kind of like the beginning of the Second World War at the end of the 1930s, where there really was kind of like this rigid class structure that was already very strong because of Confucianism that goes obviously back hundreds and hundreds of years in many East Asian cultures and really at this period placed Japanese people at the top of the pile as kind of like a, a superior nationality, a superior race to their counterparts in the rest of Asia. And this kind of like really is mirrored in kind of in the class structures that existed in the Victorian period in the United Kingdom, where British people really saw themselves as kind of like the top of the pile when it came to kind of like their colonial conquests as well. And it was a really great way of being able to kind of like show the the similarities between two colonial powers and powers with really strong kind of like class structure as well. So interestingly, I read that for the theatrical release of the film, the subtitles were color coded because they speak a mix of Korean and Japanese in this movie that if you're not familiar with either of those languages, you might have missed if you were just kind of reading the subtitles. I was going to ask actually, Rowan, did you did you notice kind of like the difference between the two because like I can I can't speak very much Korean or Japanese but I can kind of tell the difference between the two and it's really like it's very contextual when they decide to speak Korean and when they decide to speak Japanese like did you clock onto any of that without the color coding not at all oh cool no I I notoriously am terrible at all foreign languages. I learned French for like 10 years at school and I cannot speak a word of it. And it is a source of great pain to me because I would love to be able to speak languages. I fully just did not clock that at all. But I knew about it when I first uh, watched this movie. But then I 
immediately because I loved it so much when I read about it. So I then knew that there were these different uh, scenes. And then I uh, looked at a lot of interviews and context around like when it changes. So I'd kind of tr tried to work it out, but I'm sure I missed some stuff. But yeah, I just thought that was really kind of interesting that you had those two. And it makes a lot of sense within the movie is kind of when that's happening. It's one of those things that we've had actually recently with another South Korean export to the rest of the world that was Squid Game that there's been some contention with the translation of the subtitles for that series as well. And I think that it's one of those things that if you are looking at a, a piece of media in translation, there's obviously going to be some things that are missing because like, you know, linguistic puns might be impossible to translate in the right way or stuff that's like very specific to the cultural context of that country or that language, but also just the way in which it's chosen to be translated, what they decide to emphasize will be different. So I have a feeling that depending on whether you watch this in the original Korean and Japanese and can understand those languages, or if you're having to get a translation and rely on subtitles, you may have some some subtly different kind of experience of the story. Yeah, and uh, like it's it's worth bearing in mind as well that even beyond just the Japanese and the Korean levels of the nuances of of when those languages are used throughout the film, Japanese and Korean themselves also have really hierarchical grammatical st structures where uh, depending on who you talk to, you are basically kind of like you're almost especially in Korean, you're almost using a completely different language, kind of like the equivalence of as a, an ex-student of French, Rowan, you may remember this, the difference between tu and vu in French, or in like old English, you and thou, and those kind of registers, but kind of there's even more layers to that in both Korean and Japanese that I can say, uh, I love you, and in Korean, and where is the high-speed rail in Japanese, and so my my um, <laughs> Korean and Japanese are not quite at the level of being able to pick up on those nuances, but those are definitely things that surface in the film as well. So this movie was extremely well received when it was released. So it was selected to compete for the Palme d'Or at Cannes. More Cannes success uh, for the director. It also grossed over $38 million worldwide and its budget was only $8.8 So it did extremely well. It also won the BAFTA for Best Film Not in the English Language in the UK. It just had such incredible appeal. I think partly because of its link to Sarah Waters. Her stuff is really kind of well known in the UK and well loved, like Fingersmith and Tipping the Velvet were are both sort of adapt TV adaptations that people have really fallen in love with here. And so I think it was had this element of being very kind of familiar, but at the same time different enough that people felt like they could go and see it and get something new. So in terms of the story, it's kind of loosely based as the fact that it's like changed locations and historical context completely it has also changed the narrative slightly but in a way that I actually controversially prefer to the book <gasps> so the book is kind of even more sprawling if you can imagine than this movie hence why it was kind of previously adapted into like a mini series I actually can imagine that because it's yeah it's three hours long well two and a half hours long and then there was a director's cut that I have watched in the past and that's that I think is three and a half hours long mm -hmm. it's a brilliant movie but my god is it a bit of a slog the changes to the movie from the book 
primarily come in the sort of third act, I guess. After the maid Sue is committed to the asylum in place of the Lady Maud, that's when things start to change. So they basically find out that Mrs. Suxby, who is the woman who raised Sue, who we see very briefly in the movie, she's not like a huge part in the movie, but she is a big, big part of the book. You basically find out that she many years ago was approached by Maud's mother who was trying to escape from this sort of abusive family and begged her to take her child to keep her safe and agreed to take one of the farmed babies in her place. And so Sue is actually Maud's mother's real child. And then Maud, as it turns out, is actually Mrs. Suxby's child because she gave this like lady her own child. I think like kind of Hint, it's kind of the, the idea being that she thought if my child has gone to this woman, like at some point I can find her again and then I will have like a legal sort of tie to money, to power, like as this all unravels. So basically the whole plan had been Mrs. Suxby's all along, you know, to take both of these girls fortune because she found out that the mother rewrote her will to split the money between them. So she's like, well, if I get this girl committed and then I basically have the other girl sort of trapped in my uh, establishment, I can take both of their money. So various hijinks happen. Sue escapes from the asylum. There's these big confrontations. And then at the end, they're sort of like in love again. Oh, my God. I'm like, I thought that the movie itself was convoluted and and had too many layers. This book sounds bananas. So one of the things that's really interesting is in the book, none of the like secret plotting happens. So it's not that Maud and Sue have like plotted the entire time, which is, you know, what happens in the movie. And I think one of the really great twists, like secondary twists in this movie that also gives them a lot of agency and allows for like a happy lesbian ending in historical drama, which is unheard of. And so it it is very convoluted in the plot, but it doesn't necessarily have some of the twists in the plot of the movie that I really, really enjoyed. And I think it's also a lot more of like an understandable happy ending in the movie because they already knew about each other's like supposed betrayal and it happens a lot earlier and they've like figured out that they've both been manipulated and kind of forgive each other and are able to kind of be reunited and have this beautiful moment. So uh, yeah, there's some, there's definitely some changes from the book's plot, but I think that what was taken out and what was added to me really makes for a very strong narrative in the movie. So, Rowan, I'm I'm actually um curious what you might may think about this. When you think about Korea and what you would assume about the queer experience in Korea, what as somebody who isn't as much of an Asia aficionado as as me, what do you what's your kind of like interpretation of it from what you know about the culture? I honestly know reasonably little, to be honest. Um, so in terms of uh, looking at like the timeline of like queer rights around the world, Asia has generally been slightly slower, but I'm not entirely sure how Korea fits into that. Because I know that there's in, in some countries, there's kind of a mismatch between the legal protections and the general like cultural ideas. And obviously without a very particularly Western idea of like gender and sexuality, there are some things that are more or less permissible kind of in contrast of how we might think about it in the west so like for example some countries in which trans identities are more accepted than like mm-hmm. queer sexualities and vice versa like across the asian continent but korea specifically i do not know but i have a feeling jazza that you are going to tell me oh i'll try and give you at least a bit of an idea so many people's in kind of like exposure to korean culture comes through things like uh, korean 
dramas like um, TV shows uh, or through K-pop or through uh, shows and and, um, movies like Squid Game or uh, Old Boy or like The Handmaiden, which all seem quite, if if not progressive, at least kind of like very modern the way that they present Korean culture, very bright, open, exciting, uh, youthful, etc. Right. Yeah, there's definitely been uh, a lot written about the fact that a lot of the exports from Korea that do really well in the UK and the US are like staunchly anti-capitalist and like very (laughs) left-leaning in a way that's like kind of theorized that that kind of media doesn't necessarily do super well coming from our own countries because people maybe see it a bit hitting a bit too close to home. But that slight distance makes it easier for them to, I guess, like empathize with that point of view uh because it feels like it's happening to someone else and that it's commenting on something that's not quite what's going on with us which i think is really interesting so yeah i i I totally agree with you that there's this kind of very sort of progressive type messaging that comes with the stuff that's been popular it kind of over here from south korea yeah 100 percent. and we see it with this movie as well right in terms of the representation of lesbianism of women and their power of like colonialism uh class structures and the um subverting of those and all of that kind of stuff all of that is present in this film when we look at specifically though lgbt representation in korean media and lgbt rights in general in south korea because obviously we don't have an awful lot of information on north korea it really is kind of like uh, stark how conservative the country is. There is not only a long history of uh, Confucianism, which is a East Asian philosophy that very much values uh, familiar hierarchies and makes it really difficult for queer people to find a space in society. But also there is a Christian minority, but a very vocal minority within Korea that hold a lot of sway in places of power, like like in um, politics and often are very vocal when it comes to protesting representation of, of queer people in that way, at like pride marches or anything along those lines. Being queer in South Korea is shown as being particularly difficult, not only, mainly because of the... I'm yeah I'm going to I'm going to call it draconian rules that they have around military service in in South Korea so all young men in South Korea have to perform some kind of military service and being openly gay and doing any actually not even being openly gay having any kind of kind of like private same sex sex or attraction while in the military is actually illegal in Korea and is even more kind of like repressive than what would often be said to be the the US equivalent of don't ask don't tell to the point where I think it was only last year there were a couple of soldiers who were doing their military service who were convicted of literally sexual harassment of one another even though they had consensual um, sex to two young men because of the way that this law defines same-sex attraction in in the military. And that kind of like conservatism echoes through to a lot of the media that we end up consuming. So there are very few out South Korean celebrities and there are very few representations within Korea as well in like K-dramas. There's a really small handful, stuff like Itaewon class is probably one of the the best ones that came out um a couple of years ago, which represents a trans story, and some older ones, uh, Love with Flaws and Schoolgirl Detectives is a, also another K drama, and there's a couple of Korean movies that also play to the 
South Korean experience. So uh, there's The King and the Clown, uh, which came out in the mid-2000s. And there's also um, No Regret, which is uh, another kind of like gay movie. But beyond those, there are very few positive examples of like queer life in Korean media very much. It's not easy being queer in, in the country at all. So I just like, as you were talking, was I'm like very interested in this. And I just had a little look at some sort of, because I was wondering, is this something which is consistent with younger generations or is it something that's seen as like oh this is the traditional ideas of people who are older who are currently in power but it might be shifting and it does seem like it is uh, even in the last like five ten years has definitely been changing in terms of people's attitudes becoming a lot more accepting so I guess hopefully this is something that's like on the change that it's it's something that's being developed and I'm sure that there are like incredible activists and, and people working within the country who are kind of taking on these yeah very seeming like real difficulties with having a queer experience within the country yeah and that's almost always the case right younger uh, generations tend to be more open to these things but it is still way way behind what we would maybe expect in in uh, mm-hmm. in the west like human rights watch only this year released a report about the frightening levels of lgbt bullying that happens in in korean schools and as we go into kind of like talking about this movie that obviously uh, like hangs around a same-sex female relationship and has explicit sex scenes it's important that we bear that in mind when we when Mm. we think about the culture that this is coming from so i'm going to take a break here from talking to jazza to talk instead directly to you dear listener specifically i would like to ask you a question Do you use the internet? So the evidence before us in that you can in fact hear me suggests that the answer to that question is yes. And in that case, our sponsor today, Tab for Records, is absolutely for you. If you've listened to the podcast before, I'm sure you already know this, but if not, Tab for Records is a browser extension that lets you raise money for charity while just doing your own thing online. No longer should you be ashamed of the many, many tabs that you have had open for months at a time that you were definitely getting around to like reading that article, watching that video. Because every time you open a new tab with Tab for a Cause, you will see two things. One, a beautiful photo, and two, a small ad. And part of that ad money goes towards a charity of your choice. So if using the internet and raising money for charity is something that you're interested in, then you should join Team Queer Movie by signing up at tabforacause.org slash queermovie. So if you've been enjoying this episode of the Queer Movie podcast, obviously you can check out the rest of our episodes, but we would also recommend that you check out some of the other shows that are part of the Multitude Collective. And today specifically, I'm going to recommend The Newest Olympian. So as a mythology kid, you know, like one of these kids wasn't into dinosaurs, wasn't into trains, whatever, was into mythology. I cannot believe that the Percy Jackson series totally passed me by. And I'm not the only one. So The Newest Olympian is essentially a podcast that follows Mike Schubert, a first time reader of the Percy Jackson books, being joined by long term Percy Jackson fans to essentially read through the series. Each week, they recap the plot beat by beat, dive into the Greek mythology of the story, and sing the praises of Percy's incredible snark. Are you a PJO fan? I guess which is a fan that knows enough about Percy Jackson to know that it's shortened to PJO. I was like, the Percy Jackson universe. 
Percy Jackson and the Olympians, for anyone not in the know, then you can come venture down memory lane and laugh at Mike failing to predict what happens next. And if you've never read the series and are looking for an excuse to do so, you can read along with the podcast like a kind of digital book club. If that sounds up your alley, then new episodes drop every Monday. Just search for The Newest Olympian in your podcast app or go to thenewestolympian.com to start listening. So now I've given you two very exciting things to look up when you're done with this podcast, I guess we should get back into it. So uh, now we're going to move on and talk about the movie itself. Um, I'm going to start with part one, uh, which I have named Fully Ripe. Uh, I don't know if you have an alternative <laughs> title to this section. Um, I did, but I'm really happy with that. I can't up that. I'm sorry, that's brilliant. So um, for just, just a slight bit of context, we originally were going to cover this movie a very long time ago, back in like 2019 or something when we were previously doing the podcast and we watched it. I got all the way to Jazz's house. You know, I'd made loads of notes on post-it notes and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Jazz's mic was broken, so we couldn't do it. But I kept those post-it notes for the last two years and I used them as like the basis of my notes for today. And Fully Ripe was just the first thing I had written on the post-it note. So it felt right oh. that I that I included it. Beautiful. <laughs> so in terms of like the story, we start off with this, you know, seemingly young, innocent servant girl who's been taken to the big gothic house of secrets in the dead of night. And uh, this is very much the start of a classic sort of gothic story, or it seems to be. So we discover in this movie a lot of like twists and turns and secrets and things that we thought are not what we actually thought so the way that I've gone about making notes Jazza I don't know about you is to basically just um take them at face value for each section with the maybe a little tiny mention of like hey this might be important to think about for later on because there's a lot of things that you think are happening that you later find out something totally different is actually going on Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so I I don't I sadly do not have access to my notes from when I watched this previously, but I'm very happy to hang this whole episode around Rowan's notes from two or three years ago. So let's do this. To me, two or three years ago, clearly in a much better mental and physical state than me right now. Um, So we we trust her. So yeah, she's, uh, I really enjoyed right from the beginning that they were breaking down, I think, this stereotypical image of like the innocent young servant girl, just in really small ways. So like, for example, she's always eating. She isn't like quiet and reserved. She's not this like, you know, timid, nervous protagonist. She's like a criminal with agency. And I found that super refreshing for the type of not necessarily just uh, things set around like historical eras, but specifically the trend of like lesbian historical dramas that I personally find most of them quite dry and boring. Um, (laughs) It's a lot of like, hey, we don't really talk. We just sort of like look at each other dramatically and then have sex and then look at each other dramatically again. Yeah, there's, I feel like in general, in a, in a, I don't want to taint all lesbian period dramas with the same brush, but most of them are like a lot of really tense kind of like yeah. eye contact shots and then an explicit sex scene. And that's kind of about it. Yeah. And, and so I think that when you get something that bucks that convention, that is more interesting. So The Handmaiden obviously is part of that. Gentleman Jack, I think definitely falls into that category. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Dickinson as well. That that's really refreshing and exciting. And this is basically kind of what this does. So we continue on basically learning some stuff that really paints this as a straightforward kind of gothic type horror. She meets the lady of the house that she's to be at her hand 
Maiden Four, and you find out that this woman's aunt went mad and hung herself. You know, the idea that there might be a ghost on the property, lots of tense music, lots of screaming. Mm-hmm. A creepy uncle who um, has a yep. black tongue because he licks his ink. Yep. Very much, this is what we seem to be setting up. And If you've already watched the movie, you will also be able to spot some interesting foreshadowing and signposting that we don't really pick up on. We just feel like it's, okay, this is a bit of exposition. So when she's being kind of toured around the house, she gets told like the master is a great lover of books. And we do not know until later on in the movie what that actually means. But yeah, we have have this idea of what's going on. And then we get this flashback story of what's actually happening or what we think is actually happening, which is that this girl is in fact a very accomplished like pickpocket, forger and... I guess child trafficker, technically. Um, she, it's, mm. <laughs> she's kind of um, looking after these children to sort of sell into the sort of adoption market. Mm-hmm. And she like picks the pocket of the the guy who's come to kind of explain this big plan that they're going to execute to steal this woman's fortune. And he picks her pocket right back. They're sort of very evenly matched. And I think at that point, if you didn't know what this movie was about, you might even think that that was the romance that was going to happen. The idea of like, oh, these two are going to fall for each other and and it's going to be a sort of Bonnie and Clyde criminal situation. Mm -hmm. And so basically the plan is this man is going to seduce this rich heiress to get her money. And then once they are secretly married away from her uncle, they will basically then commit her to an asylum and they will split the money and the handmaiden is to go and basically like be the honey in the rich heiress's ear of like, oh, this man is perfect for you. You've really looked incredible and like happy since he's been here. Like he could take you away from all of this and sort of work together to manipulate her into kind of accepting his hand in marriage. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, I really, I I just want to go back to to what you were saying about the way that the handmaiden, Suki, uh, the way that she's portrayed as kind of like a happy, uh, uh, like unrefined, maybe is the words that I'm mm. thinking of. Because the way that she ends up being uh, juxtaposed with Hideko, who's the lady that they're trying to swindle, is just really shit. Like it's very chef's kiss in terms of kind of like really cementing the the class structure that mm-hmm. is really at the forefront of this movie through. Not only the fact that those who are uh, more upper class speak a more refined Japanese, Suki speaks Japanese but with a strong Korean accent, but also like their their mannerisms, the fact that Suki also has like a sun-kissed skin, mm-hmm. where even still in East Asia, having having a tan is is not the fashion. I really love th- that characterization of of Suki and. It makes it hard to not root for her. I love her. Yeah, absolutely. She feels like she has a natural personality, which again, in a lot of period dramas is slightly lacking. Yeah, right. Yeah, because it's like kind of kept behind this sort of refined veneer in a lot of times. But she like completely bucks that. So for example, when she's, she sort of negotiates with this guy and is like, hey, um, not only do I split the money with like this family that I'm a part of, but also I get my own 100 grand and I'm going to get all of her dresses and jewellery. It becomes very clear that this first 10 minutes, at least part of it was probably an act. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. So there's something interesting going on. So we come out of the flashback and we find that she's, you know, adjusting to life as a handmaiden. The other maids are sort of bully her a little bit. And she, instead of like, you know, going off and weeping about how mean they are, basically just like, those fuckers. And I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I love her. Um, 
And then she kind of meets this woman that she's meant to be persuading to be seduced by this kind of fake count. And immediately is like, oh, she's gorgeous. I'm completely flustered by this. Gay panic, gay panic. (laughs) Which is one of those things that I really appreciated that there's gay panic in terms of like, oh my gosh, this person's really hot. But there isn't gay panic in terms of like, oh no, what does this mean? Am I a homosexual? Like I'm struggling with this. Like both of them just seem pretty chill about the fact that they really fancy another woman mm-hmm. which uh you know it's not a bad thing to to deal with that because obviously you know a lot of people go through it but i found it really refreshing in a period drama to just have them be like yeah she's hot like i don't know what to tell you she's cool i like her I'm like <laughs> this is uh that's as far as it goes yeah it was really matter of fact and there, there there wasn't really anything around it being kind of like around their same sex stuff being a taboo until the very end when they like stow away and hideko presents herself as like a a very victorian style female husband but yeah they this kind of romance just seems really intuitive um and Mm -hmm. i i don't think i've ever really seen that without the kind of like baggage of the historical context and i don't know whether this is because it's uh being told from the Korean's perspective or whether it's because of maybe the stuff that's lost in translation from the source text i don't know but it's it works I like it. And at this point, basically, we we start to see Hideki, the lady, from this point of view of, you know, she's very sad, melancholy. She talks about how she's like tired of reading. And all of this seems to be kind of emphasizing the idea that she is just a sort of spoilt rich lady who's a bit clueless, who like, oh, she's so exhausted from reading. She has to have her maid read to her. Like all of this kind of stuff is really building up the idea of this woman as just being like sort of childlike, sort of wandering through the house not really good for anything just like classic like upper class woman who doesn't really have a lot of agency even though she sort of is is probably going to inherit a load of money yeah this first part where she is presented literally presented as a baby when there is the the bathing scene where suki files down a sharp part of her tooth which i Mm -hmm. i i i've never been aware of as kind of like a thing before um but where she literally says i'm putting these these perfumed washing soaps on you to make you smell nice like a baby it's like you're my baby and the reason that Hideko and Suki speak Korean together is because Hideko says oh I'm so I have to read Japanese all day long uh therefore I want to speak my second language like I mean, objectively, it doesn't make sense, but it is a Korean movie. And so any way that they can come up with a way for them to be able to speak Korean together rather than Japanese makes sense to me. So that's fine. Yeah, we have this bathing scene, which is, as you said, like they kind of talk about like this mistress is like a baby. Like she's just this innocent little flower that I'm manipulating. (laughs) We have this scene from the point of view of the maid who's like, I there is this woman that I kind of fancy who's just this like innocent little flower and this poor woman doesn't really know what's Mm -hmm. happening to her as i'm like filing down her tooth with a thimble and there's like clearly sexual tension between us but she's maybe too innocent to understand what it means again we will find out later (laughs) that's not entirely true but we at this point the count arrives to kind of start to initiate the plan like full throttle into the seduction plan and we see Suki is very savvy like when she's called to talk to the count she waits for the other maid to leave to before talking about the plan like she's very intelligent she's very smart she might be like illiterate for example but I think it's a really interesting uh, kind of example of like talking about class where it's like someone has a lack of opportunity but they do not have 
a lack of like intelligence or like mm-hmm. smarts or knowledge. Yeah, or... she's illiterate, but she's not dumb. Exactly. They basically go about kind of working out how to manipulate her. In this scene, interestingly, which I think I missed the first time I watched it, she still has a thimble on her finger as she's talking to the Count. So there's this kind of interesting like visual of her still being connected and there being like a bridge between her and this and this woman that maybe isn't over like it's not fully a manipulation there's some part of her that maybe is starting to have feelings for her like it's it's sort of slowly creeping in but at this point she thinks that the lady is like too naive to really understand desire properly and like they they're gonna have to like work to manipulate her basically so at this point we get a lot of like the lady and the maid bonding because this is both part of the plan and also you know what's gonna happen when you're working for someone in that kind of intimate way so they're joking around kind of with their corsets and talking about the count and gossiping i love the symbolism of the corsets and i think it really plays into the way that hideko is portrayed in this first part of the movie where we are led to believe that she is the one being exploited and manipulated and i feel like the the corset from this perspective from Suki, or like this partial perspective from Suki, I, I feel like the corset is is the hierarchical ideals and the restrictions of womanhood, like the old age trope of the corset being kind of like restriction on women. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, Suki is the one who releases Hideko from the corset. But then what does Hideko do? She puts Suki into a corset herself which like foreshadows the second perspective that we have in the second part of the of the movie I bloody love like it's a really overt use of that trope but I really really bloody loved it also the I couldn't help but mention the fact that at one point um Hideko is having a painting lesson from the count that is trying to seduce her and they're painting peaches and as we know peaches are inherently gay thank you call me by your name That is entirely true. During this, like, so this whole section is like, they're bonding. She has these art classes with the Count. They go on a lot of walks. Like, that's pretty much like the vibe for this entire section. And it it kind of What else are you going to do when you're a high class heiress, Rowan? Like, all you're going to do is paint peaches and go on walks. It kind of shows them bonding. And you've got this, just some really funny lines when you know the whole context of it, where they're both clearly like, one of them is sort of like actively trying to seduce the other and then the other one is trying to trick the other and they're both kind of going about it and they're just saying stuff that is so gay to each other but they're the other one is trying to like not give any indication that they think it's that's what the other person meant so like Hideki is like every night I think about your face and I'm like that's gay my dude like that's that's not a thing you just say to your maid casually (laughs) and like all these buttons for my amusement like miss that you are fully lesbians there's also like Suki's like oh talking about like you know this poor girl losing her heart to a fraud and I'm like she's clearly in the context of the movie talking about the count but I'm like bitch you're the fraud (laughs) she's losing her heart to you Mm. the fraud so yeah it's just really it, it it kind of has this like sort of dark humor irony to it of like the misconnections, the missed the missed things. There's also just, I mean, for a movie that's about very serious subjects, there are just these moments of real comedy, which I think is like something that this director kind of is, is known for. Like a lot of people talk about it. Yeah, 100%. It's also one of the things that I think modernizes it when compared to other like period yes. dramas and maybe more like whenever we have uh, Western interpretations of like a period piece in the Victorian era, 
I I'd never really expect there to be this level of of comedy. Yeah. Whereas it's it's kind of peppered in. I I don't know whether I found it jarring or not. No, I loved it. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Rowan said we'll um, allow it. We'll allow it. Well, it's just like there's this bit where that she's in the art class with a count, and they're like really seriously talking about like, oh, maybe I need more dimensionality in my painting. And you see the painting, and it's like the worst, like <laughs> child's bad drawing, and it's just yeah, so so silly. But yeah, so they uh, the the count has agreed with Suki that the sort of like code he's going to use for when he thinks that she's like he's like got her in his clutches, basically is he'll say the word fully the phrase fully ripe in front of her and then she'll know like now is the time to turn up gears like we're going for the end game like i'm i'm going to like get this woman to be in love with me real soon and he says it while biting into a very juicy peach so he really was just encroaching on the gay peach uh imagery by mm-hmm, mm-hmm, inserting mm-hmm. himself into it there and ju- during this whole section as well we get one of these walks that they go on where i think for me at least this is the moment that everything starts to change at least for Hideki because they talk about their mothers and I think this is like an actual moment where she does show herself for a minute there Mm -hmm. and we obviously don't know that that's what's happening at the time we kind of just see her be pretty similar to how she's always been this like lady who's you know talked before about her her aunt's death and all that kind of stuff but I think that like this genuine moment of emotion from Suki and like reassuring her and and sort of telling her that you know her mother would have loved her and all this kind of stuff like Mm -hmm. I think that was the moment that both of them actually like started to allow themselves to think that this could be something real I feel like you see the authenticity of the of, of those characters so Suki like basically is pour out all of my emotion very actually like comes across a very naive and and is like very touchy with Hideko and you see Hideko who who we go on to know has had a very traumatic upbringing it feels like for the first time having those feelings and that vulnerability almost dragged out of her a little bit mm-hmm. by that intimacy with Suki the performances in this film are bloody bloody fantastic so at this point we get to a real key moment that is again when we get to part two is completely different to what we think is happening but at this point what we think is happening is the count has asked Suki to like go back on one of these walks to get the oil paints so that he can basically like be alone with this woman to fully seduce her Suki literally like legs it back to the house to get these oil paints and as she like manages to leg it back she sees Hideko and the Count in this very amorous embrace kissing Mm -hmm. and Clearly, at this point, really feels An like exposed it's... leg from Hideko. Oh, so a beautiful scary. exposed leg, mm. um, just straddling this man, and she clearly feels like there's this sort of betrayal that's happened. And there's obviously a lot of like complicated emotions going on for her because she's like, she is a, a criminal. She's a con artist. She is here to like con this woman, but she still feels like there's some kind of betrayal happening because she's like fallen for this scheme that I mean, yeah, she's she's in part of doing. She's like super jealous. And they argue after the kiss in this really passive aggressive way about like, you know, Hideko's like, oh, you know, you should have been here to dress me before the reading. I was really tired. And they're very clearly arguing about something else entirely, which is the fact that 
she seems to be falling for the count when they both feel like they're falling for each other and they like sleep next to each other in the bed and she basically says like the count's proposed to me I think we're going to elope and I'm afraid and as you're re-watching it you're like how much is this the truth and how much is this a lie like at this point like everything that you know is kind of a bit up in the air because it all seems to be going reasonably well from the the plan that Suki and the count have had so if it's this was just a straightforward story it would be the story of like someone who has to choose between the money and her love and that would just be the end of it and that's kind of what we think is happening at this point and then they decide to do sex times at career high and the classic you know like oh I'm practically a child what is it that men want like how can I go to my husband on his wedding night and disappoint him oh my god I, I just really love that the, the initial come on line that Hideko says she calls for Suki and says I can feel a nightmare coming and then like makes a space for her on the bed. I'm using that in the future. Like that's a brilliant, a brilliant pickup line. Oh no. It's, yeah, it's like the sort of stepped up version of like, oh no, we're in this horror movie and I'm so scared. Uh, Um, You must put your arm around me. (laughs) And so she basically like, Suki sort of seemed, we get her narration throughout and she seems to be telling herself like, oh, I'm just going to kiss this lady to just show her, you know, something so she won't be so lost in this like you know strange land and this like naive in another country that she's going to and you're like yeah sure my dude that's totally what you're doing and then we get this slight hint that at this point in the movie with what we know it's like oh clearly like this is so she's so good at this kiss and it's so brilliant that like Hideko is is suddenly like overcome because she like pulls Suki to her like really passionately and you're like oh look at that she's clearly awoken something in her obviously later we find out that uh absolutely Hideko is not some innocent flower who's never had sex before and doesn't understand it mm-hmm. but it's at this moment it's just it, everything is everything is like double meanings and and when you rewatch it you're like oh god yeah all of these things these manipulations it, what is real what is fake so they at this point have fully kind of I think they're both trying to still act like sort of like being able to deny it if they were actually asked about it in terms of you know like oh you know I'm just doing this to help uh my lady with her future husband like Mm -hmm. still there's a there's kind of like a sense of denial to it but we get this second walk art class scene in which Suki basically refuses to leave Hideko alone with the count Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. So she's now fully interfering with the plans. So he confronts her and is like, this is not what we agreed. And we kind of have this moment of like tension between them, sort of mutually assured destruction. Like if you tell her who I really am, I will tell her who you really are. And she kind of ends this confrontation trying to make it about the con again. Like, oh, you know, I'm just trying to, like, I know her. And if you keep pushing this hard, like she'll retreat. Like you need softly, softly, you need to be a bit more subtle about it. As if she was only refusing to leave the art class because she was still totally on board with the plan. And we get this scene where uh, Suki and Hideki are talking and, and Hideki seems to want to confess that she really likes Suki. And so she's sort of like, you know, what if I was in love with someone else or this kind of stuff? And Would you still want me to marry the Count, essentially, is what she Yeah, asks. exactly. And then give Suki a couple of really big slaps across the face. Mm-hmm. When she's like, yeah, you should totally marry the Count. Harsh, you know, but... Yeah, a little bit harsh. And so they basically agree that she'll get... She agrees to get married if Suki also comes to Japan with them. And they... Uh, 
they do they they run away they run away to the count together with importantly for later on in the movie the rope hanging from the tree there is a rope hanging from the tree that her aunt that has a noose um on it that implies yep. that somebody has t- has tied up ready to hang themselves or oh, foreshadow uh, yeah, which obviously is what happened to her aunt previously. And so it's like, oh, interesting. Okay, cool. They're running past this rope and it sort of lingers on the rope. And you're like, sure, I guess. And at this point, if you're watching the movie for the first time, you're like, I don't know what that was about, but uh, oh boy, it's going to come back later. And the last sec- the last kind of bit that happens in part one is uh, the wedding. They get married. Yeah, they elope to Japan. It happens. Any idea that you might have had that this movie was about her confessing her love and they call off the wedding? Nope, that's not where we're going with this. They fully are getting married. And so, you know, this wedding happens and they're waiting around for the Count to get back after sort of organising all of the, like, practicalities of, you know, sort of liquidating the inheritance and getting everything in place so that they can finish off the plan to put Hideku into the asylum. And we get another sort of very gothic idea of, like, the wife sort of wandering around, going slowly mad after the marriage, to the sort of slightly loveless marriage. And um, Suki is clearly, like, really worried about Hideku and, like, what's happening to her. And they're still being very gay together in the meantime, but she's really worried that she's going to uh, sort of break, essentially, Mm -hmm. from all of this. Well, that's the perspective we have, but importantly, they are being spied on by... That is also true. Yeah, uh, by an accomplice of of the Count. But the Count has brought in, I guess, a 1930s version of a psychologist, I assume, because the Count is trying to... We assume that the Count is trying to, to section... Hideko and they ask Suki what do you think should happen to your lady and she says she should be uh, put in a place where she's not a threat to herself or is threatened by anybody else and then they take her to uh, the three of them go to the asylum Suki walks up and then is uh, says goodbye to her lady and then Suki shock horror is taken into the asylum as Lady Hideko. So they've clearly, the perspective that we have at the end of Act 1 is that Suki has been completely tricked, that they have um, managed to make it look like Suki herself is Lady Hideko, and Suki has been thrown under the bus, and in this case, the bus is the mental asylum. Dun dun dun! I had forgotten everything about this movie and was genuinely like, I don't remember this being anywhere near the conclusion, but then I remembered we were only an hour into a two and a half hour movie. Yeah. And so we zoom, zoom, zoom back in time. Welcome to part two, um, which I have called the party in its aftermath. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, as it should be. Yeah, as anyone who's listened to other episodes of this show knows, there is always in every single film that we seem to watch a party in its aftermath. And this Mm -hmm. is no exception. The party is just... um, horrifying so we basically flash all the way back to Hideki as a child and we get her backstory essentially we get her backstory yeah the backstory is essentially she has been hugely mistreated by her uncle she's been groomed from a really young age to basically do erotic readings that her auntie has been doing while she's been growing up she's been groomed to do erotic readings for seedy Japanese businessmen and actually so in the in the first act, 
Hideko's ability to read is really presented as kind of like it's it's one of the few positions of power that we assume that she has over Suki. And it turns out that the root of that power comes from a really exploitative part of her upbringing because she was taught to read by reading erotica. There's one really, really jarring scene where the young Hideko is going through basically the equivalent of like a picture book that has the names of some nouns. So it's like sun, moon, elbow, ear, nose, face, etc. And then goes into genitalia and saying like uh, penis, vagina, etc, etc. And actually, she was taught how to read and given this position of power by being exploited as a young child learning to read pornography, which is just... massive mind fuck it's really strange because i've watched this movie so many times and like so i kind of have an eye on like everything that's actually happening the whole way through but again when you're watching this for the first time it's kind of like a oh this is how the movie is going to maybe explain like why she would betray this maid for a chance to escape like she's not just some rich person who's been sneakily evil this whole time like she genuinely really wants to escape from an extremely traumatic and abusive house that she feels like she has no other way of escaping and that she would be willing to betray the maid for the chance of escape in the same way that the maid might be willing to betray her for the chance of a better life and a a way out of the sort of destitute situation she was previously Mm -hmm. in. And actually the Count is originally presented as her way out. So Mm -hmm. uh, Hideko eventually takes over from her auntie who is originally the reader, the recounter of kind of like erotic poetry and erotic stories for all of these CD businessmen. Hideko's aunt eventually kills herself on the sakura, on the on the cherry blossom tree, by hanging herself, uh, which obviously is really traumatic for the young Hideko. Hideko eventually takes over what her aunt was training her to do as a live audiobook reader, <laughs> I think. Yeah, in the worst possible way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and let us introduce you to our sponsor of this episode, Audible. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm um... sure that they would be okay with that. But yeah, the the Count attends one of these reading sessions and basically gets 10 minutes with Hideko and says, hey, how about we rob your uncle of his inheritance? And we do that by coercing a new handmaiden for you. And that is how um, Suki is introduced to us. So actually, sorry to correct you there. Oh, go on. It is Hideku who has the idea to bring a maid in and send her to the madhouse. Yes, you are correct. Which I thought was very interesting. So we have, yeah, he basically approaches her and he confesses everything. Like the whole plan that we thought that she had no idea about. He's like, yeah, um, so I saw this guy was super rich i hatched this plan i got really good at forgery and i have uh, done all of this in order to basically come to you with this plan split your fortune i get the money you get the money plus i provide you with a chance of escape he says like most marriages imprison women but this one would free you yeah love that line and then there's also this line that i really enjoyed which was him basically being like i originally my plan was to trick you to like seduce you and take your money but having spent like two seconds with you i know that for a man to seduce you would be and then she just replies impossible and obviously it's like is this because she is so sort of jaded and kind of distrustful because of what's been done to her by uncle or is it because she is fully a lesbian or is it both Mm -hmm. and so she basically is like okay my plan was basically just to kill myself but i guess this way we both win no one gets hurt right like this seems great and we also get this reveal of like 
the reason why she hasn't run away already, the reason why she felt like she didn't have that ability is because of this basement that has been heavily hinted at throughout the movie. We finally get this reveal of the uncle essentially caught the aunt trying to escape and killed her rather than it being an actual suicide. And we find out that Hideko basically has known this from when she was a child and her aunt first died and that he has been using that to threaten her with like a kind of like i could i can kill you and and do worse to you like remember the basement because i will i will cause you such awful pain and we at that point have not seen the basement we don't know what's in there we just know that this the reaction of this little girl to seeing what was down there is like pure terror and so the the count basically gives her some opium and is like look i understand that you're really scared of this basement if you i will give you this file and if you ever end up here just take a few drops and you will be out like a light and you won't feel a thing. And so, yeah, basically they organize for her old maid to be kind of seduced and like thrown out. Can I just say, her name is Junko and Junko, the the old maid that gets kicked out, is on screen for maybe a minute, two minutes. And we just see her being seduced by by the Count. And I fell in love with her. I want her backstory. I feel so sorry for her because her opening line is something along the lines of, Oh, do you really think I'm prettier than the lady? And my, oh, I, bless I, her. my heart, you know, like mm-hmm. no, nobody in this movie is really is is very redeemable. Yeah, everyone's a little bit of a shit to everybody, but I feel like justice for Junko should be a, a hashtag that we got trending in two thousand and six. It's too late now. So at this point, we go back to the start and not to basically rehash everything that's already happened in the movie, but we see it all from Hideki's point of view, and it is entirely different because we now know this act of like the naive and foolish young sort of like lady who doesn't really know anything is very clearly an act her and Suki are both sort of think they're tricking each other but Hideki is actually the one that knows what is actually happening Mm -hmm. so for example the letter that she asks Suki to read she knows that Suki is illiterate and this uh, letter is all about the idea of like you know this handmaiden is a is a fool like she's obsessed with dresses and riches just show them to her and she'll like be putty in your hands mm-hmm. the bit where she says she finds out in the first act you think she finds out for the first time that suki's illiterate and she allegedly writes down her name and shows it to her and says like well this is your name can't you read it we think that that's just you know a lady who's never dreamt of the idea that anyone couldn't read because she's so privileged she actually writes down her own name hmm. on the piece of paper. So when she shows it to her, she's like, it says like Lady Hideku on it. Because clearly like the plan all along is to pass her off as the lady. And so it's a way of checking that the the girl is actually illiterate and also mm-hmm. almost like toying with her in quite a like villainous way. Yeah, like a, like a cat. Yeah, this like poor naive girl has no idea what's coming for her. It's also um, that really highlights at the very, very beginning of the movie. I believe it's Suki's sister. Um, says that she should be chosen to go and uh, work for, for Hideko because her Japanese is better. And it's clear now that Suki has been chosen because she is illiterate, mm-hmm. because the Count has that ability to be able to correspond with the Lady Hideko behind Suki's back in kind of like a secure way because she cannot read. And once again, kind of like this literacy, opening access to power, and obviously women in that period having less access to that power was really, really powerful. 
so we have this the same moment of re- kind of realness from that original act when they talk about their mothers and something seems to change we kind of she gets to the point at this point where she's starting to like genuinely have feelings for this other woman for example like she's never been affected by reading erotica before like this is very clearly something she's been trained into and that she finds like distasteful and sort of has kept herself numb to it and cold and very cold yeah this is like a recurring theme but there's a blackout and she in this moment of this blackout because she can't see anyone else in the room sort of forgets for a second that there's anyone there allows herself to forget and is just kind of reciting this lesbian sex scene and she is definitely affected by it in a very positive way until the lights come back on and she realizes there are still men in the room. Like she has to tap herself because she's been sweating. Oh my, I have to spy. Oh my goodness. But she's it's kind of this moment of like, oh, uh okay, I'm like able to reclaim this like element of my own like agency and body and sexuality that's been taken from me. What does that look like? And then they have a four minute sex marathon. Oh my god. And like especially when you put this into the context of kind of like Korea as a, as a very conservative country, they've already had to go through one explicit sex scene. And then it's like you get a, a rerun, but it's the director's cut of the sex scene in the same movie, um, where <laughs> you may have thought that it was already like the cunnilingus was explicit. The tit sucking was uh, rampant. Now, I mean, they we we still have the cunnilingus, but then we have Suki come up from between Hideko's legs with the whole of her face <laughs> covered in her juices, I guess. Um, God, you're uh, so gay, Jazza. Yes, let's go with her yeah, juices. Yeah, I'm, I'm very uninterested in this sexually. It's really <laughs> nice to have that kind of confirmed every now and again, do you know what I mean? Something that's really interesting, I think, is how they film these scenes because there have been a lot of criticisms of other lesbian movies directed by men, Blue is Almost Colour comes to mind, for this sort of uncomfortable, exploitative or like awkward uh, way that they've done sex scenes. So specifically, they pre-prepared a ton of stuff in pre-production they kind of discussed it at length with the actresses to see what they were comfortable with only one female crew member who was holding the boom mic was allowed to be present all other crew members were asked to leave the set all male crew members had to take the day off no visitors were allowed on set the scenes were filmed with a remote control camera so they didn't even have to have like a cameraman present and the bathroom on th- of the set was used as like a resting area for the actresses to be able to relax between takes and get some privacy and everything was discussed beforehand like fully dressed not in costume not naked like with the director like it it was pretty much like what i would consider to be like the blueprint for the best way to handle these kind of intimate scenes in a movie, which I was so happy to read about afterwards because when you have these kind of scenes, especially directed by a man, there's so many stories which are so like, oh, this could definitely have been handled better. And I was like, I love this movie so much and I'd be so annoyed if it turns out that this was an example of it. But it it genuinely sounds like it was pretty much the best way that they could have done these scenes in the most sort of like respectful way to the actresses, which I was very happy about. That makes me really happy. But then I do have to raise one thing with you, with you, Rowan. And that is the scissoring. Yes. Um, so, forgive my ignorance. Um, is that a thing? Ah, uh, the age-old question. Um, so <laughs> technically, yes. Um, it's, it's this thing where it's like, it's kind of become more of a like, stereotype trope thing than it maybe actually is because realistically, it's a lot easier to use each other's thighs than it is... To go, you know, 
Jade Gate to Jade Gate, as it were. Jade Gate to Jade Gate. Which is how it's <laughs> referred to in the in the movie as a Jade oh, Gate. Oh, um, I love you. <laughs> so, but also another thing about that scene that I thought was interesting and actually why the, that kind of version of Scissoring really works is that they also were, you will notice a lot in the movie that he's very, very, within the cinematography, there's a balance and an equality to a lot of the images of them together that there is like yeah they basically do a Sylvester Stallone like bicep grip <laughs> close up that's yeah, the they only do. reference point I have and that as they kind of like grind their jade gates together and uh yeah they, it does feel like there's an an equality to it in a way I don't know I don't Rowan I just don't get lesbian sex it's just Listen, I'm an asexual lesbian, so I'm like, it's fine, but it's not. It's not. I wasn't exactly look at those four minutes like, oh, right, here yeah, we go. Yeah. Now we're getting to the good stuff. <laughs> but it was, it was like very clearly like there's a lot of. It wasn't just the sex, but it showed the connection between the two of them. Yeah, like they yeah, yeah. very clearly were in this moment of like we're on the tipping point of admitting that we like each other, and because now we know what's actually going on with both of them, which is that they both have something that they think they need to confess to the other one. It's this, it's this real tension of like, oh God, are they going to say something? And afterwards we get that scene that we had from the first one where she ends up slapping Suki because she asks, you know, like, what if I said I love someone else? Mm-hmm. It makes a lot more sense because you're like, oh no, she is really upset that uh, Suki wants her to marry the Count because it's almost like that was the moment that if Suki had been like, don't marry him, she'd have been like... I'm not going to like here's here's what's actually going yeah, on like this is she kind of almost wanted over. her to say something she says in in the heat of their passion promise never to betray me and then mm-hmm. um uh, Suki makes her think that she is willing to that she's still yep. going to work with the um with the count absolutely uh Hideki basically is like I she goes to hang herself out of despair she's like I can't yeah on the same tree as her auntie I, I can't I don't want either of these people now she goes out and there's just this brilliant image of her letting go of the tree mm-hmm. and then just looking confused because she's not hanging and then it's, it pauses on her so for quite funny. a long time and then it just the camera just pans down and Suki is like holding her legs like she's realized that she needs to like what's happening completely unrealistically by the way like Suki is is a tiny tiny human being she's and I so do not small. believe that she'd be able to actually hold up a whole human Bless like, her. vertically as well and so they basically just confess everything to each other while she's still holding her up in the air and then once the lady is like confess everything <laughs> Suki like in anger which is typical Suki like thinking like uh, very impulsive and like stomping around and like acting before she thinks in when emotion overtakes her just drops her in anger and is like oh that motherfucker like talking about the count and then immediately it's like oh my god because she'd realized that she's she's just dropped this woman who's still attached to the tree via a rope and she's like oh my god i'm so sorry and it's just it's so again so different from these stoic historical lesbian dramas it's absolutely incredible so they immediately come up with a plan and the best thing about this is we don't hear what the plan is and if you sorry to spoil every piece of media for you ever if you haven't already noticed this if someone says the plan in a movie that plan will not work if someone does not say the plan the plan is probably going to work or at least work up until a point and so they write to the woman who kind of had raised Suki who is going to be getting some of this money as well as kind of payment and basically is like look I've decided to work with this woman instead. Like, let's all get paid. Uh, Here is what I need you to do. 
mysterious, we don't know yet what it is that they're meant to be doing. Hideku takes her to the library for the first time to basically show her the truth of what's been happening in there. And in a very cathartic scene, they just trash this library. Which is full of all of the pornography that um, Hideko has had to read her whole life. Yeah, they destroy all of this stuff. And it's beautiful. They like trash this library and they're literally like running away together across these fields. I'm crying. They're crying. There's this scene which uh, Director Parker's described as like the most important scene, which is when they jump over the stone wall. Yeah, I love that. They basically then he was like, I want everyone in the audience to notice how low the wall is. Like if she had wanted to the Lady Hideku could have jumped over the wall. But he said the deep-rooted emotional trauma inside her was holding her back. And then this person, Suki, enters her life and she's able to find love. And through that love, she gains bravery that allows her to jump over that wall in a single breath towards freedom. And I'm like, that is so fucking beautiful. And then they run off into the sunset. They run off into the sunset together. And then we see again this asylum scene where we know this isn't real. Like, we know that they have a plan. Where Suki is dropped off at the asylum. Yeah, it's like this beauty... And the score. We haven't talked about the score yet, but the, the score of this movie is incredible. I, I tried to find more information on it, and I just really... I couldn't find anything about it. But it has... Like, it's romantic, and it's gothic, and it's like every scene has the exact right score for what's going on in it in such a brilliant way. Because music can really set a mood, and it... The the mood is always with whatever the audience knows at that moment. It's never playing into like the foreshadowing or like confusing you. It just gives you exactly what you think is happening so that you are fully believing one story when you suddenly get this change. Mm-hmm. So we yeah, we leave her at the asylum and it's time for part three, which I have called Liar Liar, the Asylum's on Fire. I don't know if you had an alternative. Oh, my! I called mine The Rise of the Female Husband, just because oh, I, yes. I fucking loved Hideko uh, cross-dressing. It was brilliant. Yeah. So basically at this point, like we're all caught up. We actually know what's going on. Their plan is falling into place. We're obsessed with them. The like highborn lady and the lowborn thief. Essentially just the only fictional couple that I want to consume media about from now on is that exact trope. <laughs> and she, uh, Hideko basically is with the Count now. He thinks everything's great. Like, he is none the wiser. And she gives him a chance, I think. Like, she, she has this conversation with him where she's like, do you feel bad for Suki? And I, I kind of think that moment is like, if he had answered like, yeah, I feel bad for her, then maybe she might have changed her plan to really fuck him over. But he fully is like, no, I don't even care. And then he's like, oh, I've actually fallen in love with you. And do you want to get married again? And do you, you want to get want married to elope with me officially? to Russia? And it's like, oh, my dude, like you could not be further from what's actually happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, we see Suki is like not doing well in this asylum. It is not a good time. But there is a fire that we kind of assume has been set by her associate on the outside. That's kind of part of the plan, what she was asking for. And she escapes like an absolute boss. It's great. She is on the lam. At this point, we get something earlier on. I had written down, the first time I watched it, I'd written down, oh, I really appreciate the fact that this Count character is not being weird and creepy and exploitative in this fake relationship. Like, he very much is, like, at first, saying to her, like, don't worry, I have no sort of, like, interest in embedding you in taking anything from you in that way. Like, I just want the money. Like, you're good. We're just business partners. And then I had to scratch all of that because it turns Uh out he's an asshole still. So he sort of feels very entitled to her. This is the rape scene, essentially, where he's Mm -hmm. like, 
he throws all of the money that they've inherited on his bed uh, and he's like hey let me open your jade gate like he literally he references the text that she has been mm-hmm. reading that is a point of trauma for her um and then tries to rape her essentially she also has the plan though of using the vial that he gave her on their wedding day which contains the poison that would knock her out or kill her if she drank enough of it. She laces some wine with that that she tries to get him to drink. And then eventually, while he is kissing her, because he won't drink the wine, he just isn't engaging with it. She puts it into her mouth and then siphons it off into the count so that he passes out just before he's able to do anything apart from... Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's a gross scene but she gets out so it's fine yeah it she kind of managed to get out before he manages to actually kind of fully be successful in that attack and he basically just passes out in this room she escapes and the two of them reunite with hugs and happiness and it's so beautiful and i love it so much and then just to like twist the knife in even more for this fake count he wakes up in the room and there are some like basically some heavies who have been kind of sent by the uncle and we find out through this kind of like flashback letter reading that it is Hideki who has arranged it she's basically written to the uncle told him everything sort of mocked him for the fact that he like the uncle is Korean but he considers Japan to be kind of as as you were saying earlier on Jazza like more beautiful and more sophisticated and like really buying into this kind of colonial brainwashing and so he has been trying to speak Japanese in front of this count who he thinks is Japanese as well. And yeah, Hideki was just like, yeah, that dude was like a Korean like farmhand's son this entire time. And it was hilarious to me to watch you struggle. Like everyone's been Korean the entire time. And we finally see the basement, which is uh, horrendous. It is full of human genitals and jars and torture devices and a creepy octopus. And basically the uncle tortures the count, chops off all of his fingers, because he wants to know what it was like to fuck his niece. Lovely. Lovely. Love that. And the Count, after he's had half his fingers chopped off, um, asks if he can smoke a couple of cigarettes that are, are, are blue. Um, he smoked the rest of them before then. Um, and we've seen him smoking through the rest of the movie. Um, and it turns out that they were laced with, is it mercury? Laced with something which is going to kill both of them, essentially, yeah. in such a small enclosed space. And so we get a nice, like sort of revenge screw you ending for these two guys yeah a nice cathartic death yeah it's great and then we also get flash two the two women escaping together they disguise Hideku as a man so that they knowing very again because they're both very smart that the uncle has a lot of power and will be sending people to look for like two women trying to escape together so they, you know, use Suki's like forgery skills and criminal skills to like change their documentation. And then they disguise Hideko as a man and they basically like escape on a boat together. They chuck that wedding ring right into the damn ocean as they laugh. Absolute perfection. And then we have this final image of them both embracing and essentially reenacting a version of the lesbian sex scene that she was reading about when the blackout happened and she... Uh, had this moment of like genuine sexual interest in something for like seemingly the first time that it ever mm-hmm. happened while she was reading uh, in that kind of setting. Yeah, she's um they, they put they put bells inside one another and then you can hear the ringing as we fade to black. 
Yes, it's very much, you know, reclaiming... It's quite cute. Reclaiming this awful stuff, laughing together, having consensual fun times. These bitches have been planning this the whole time and we love them for it. And that was The Handmaiden. That's all of the very convoluted plot of this extremely long movie. And I love it. I love it. It's so long, but I love it. But oh my God, I had to watch it in three different, in three stages. <laughs> it's a, it's like a very long movie. It kind of, I mean, like there's a reason why this book had been adapted into like a miniseries before. Like it is, there's a lot going on, but I loved every part of it and I make no apologies mm-hmm. for that. Just, you yeah. know, have a few hours to spare if you're going to be watching it. Shall we dive into how we're going to rate this movie? Absolutely. So now we're on to the final little section of the podcast, which is the rating that we're going to give it. And we like to give the movies that we rate a number out of six. Why six? Well, because that's the number of colours on the rainbow flag. And we also, if it's less than six, we'll tell you which one of those stripes colours we have chosen because uh, they all have their own special meaning. However, I am going to give this, I'm going to tell you right now, six stripes. So every single colour. It's, yeah, one of my favourite movies. I think it is absolutely brilliant. It's so twisty surprising it's beautifully shot the music's incredible the acting's brilliant and it is really doing some interesting stuff with a genre that can be quite bland i loved it jazza how do you feel i'm i'm with you i agree with you on everything but i'm gonna give it five Um, (gasps) how dare uh, you i i i know and i am sorry but it was just a little bit it was too long <laughs> like I, I just couldn't get past that and i did i did love everything about the movie i think the performances are fantastic i think the editing is beautiful but it was it was just a bit too inaccessible for me in that sense mm. what would you have cut um oh, i'd have probably cut maybe half of the first act mm, okay i think that that was the bit that dragged a little bit maybe kept the second um, i think it, it didn't need to be longer than two hours um, to be honest. Okay. It's fine. Jazza hates lesbians, but you know what? It's fine. Uh... I have given I have given really <laughs> good marks to like other films sometimes. Um but Yeah, the... some of my best films are lesbians. You know what I mean? <laughs> some like it's fine. Of my best films are lesbians. Um I'm using that. But the five colours that I would give it are red for life, orange for healing, yellow for sunlight as they run into the sunlight at the end Um, uh, green for nature for that terrifying octopus at the very end that doesn't actually really Mm -hmm. do very much apart from also being in a painting and also serenity with the blue which is like what we get at the end we get a serene kind of like um, feeling at the end so that's yeah those are my five those are my five beautiful Mm -hmm. feel free to at me yeah just just fight for that one extra stripe so we actually seemingly agreed pretty pretty much on that movie. It's always interesting to see whether there's any there's a couple of movies that we have completely opposite thoughts about, but I'm very glad that this was one that we kind of reasonably agreed. Yeah, I I think it's really difficult to uh, like objectively this is a beautiful fantastic it's a it's an it's a work of art. It's a fantastic piece of mm-hmm. piece of art. Would I choose to watch it again? I don't think so. I, I think that's probably the reason it's only getting five for me because mm. it is such a it's so intense and it's a slog. Whereas I will sit down and watch something like Pride whenever I have mm. the opportunity. Whereas The Handmaiden is just so it's it's such a undertaking to be able to do it. Yeah, I would say that maybe a second watching is if you're watching it with someone that 
has never seen it before and doesn't know any of the twists, I think it would be a really interesting exercise in like getting to see someone else experience the like, oh my God, oh my God moments that, mm -hmm. that like everyone I think goes through when they watch it for the first time. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter to keep up to date with everything podcast related. If you feel entertained, please do think about supporting us over on Patreon. Our patrons really do allow us to put in the hours of research and recording that goes into these episodes. So sincerely, thank you. One of our perks on Patreon is a queer movie watch along every last Saturday of the month exclusively for our patrons hosted on our Discord. Gay fun really is had by all so come join us. The Queer Movie Podcast is edited by Julia Shafini. We're also part of Multitude Productions, so make sure you check out all of their other awesome podcasts full of both fun and frivolity. Make sure you follow and subscribe to this here podcast so that you are primed for our next episode. Thank you very much, my darlings. You will hear us very soon. Toodaloo. Uh, bye.